It's interesting, isn't it, that um, when you get into the Old Testament of the Bible or any part of the Bible that fundamentally man hasn't changed a whole lot. You would think now that with all the technology and the resources that we have that we would be somehow smarter. We're better educated but we're not necessarily smarter. We don't do things better in life than happened two, three, four thousand years ago. You know, whenever you get into the characters of the Bible, you're constantly reminded that they are real people. It's easy, I think, sometimes to open up the Bible and think that's an interesting story. That makes for interesting reading. I'm sure there's a reason it's in here, but they're real people. You know, and real people have problems. And real problems and real people have issues and things going on in their lives like we do today. And these people in Genesis were no different to us. They had problems, they had issues. Um, you know, it's, you sort of read and you think, why did they act like that? Why did they do the things they did? You know, with hindsight it's easy to say, well, why didn't they trust God? He was never not going to deliver on his promise, was he? But that's the way it goes. You know, why, did they sh- why didn't they show some patience? Why didn't they show some restraint? Why didn't they try and not control that situation that they were in and let God do his thing? But that's part of our DNA, isn't it? That's what we do. You know, the characters we look at in uh, Genesis 16 and 17 today are real people with real problems and they had issues and they had to be worked through like we have to work through ours. You know, when you read about uh, the people we're going to look at today, they had problems, family issues, they had disputes, they played the blame game, they were unhappy, they made other people unhappy, people left, people come, people did a lot of things that you know they did. And the thing that I keep coming back to when I read this is, I thank God for this. You know, I thank God that we can relate to these people. I thank God that they're not people that are put on a pedestal that we cannot go close to being like or attaining to. You know, their lives didn't always unfold as they had hoped. Not every day was a great day. The plans they made didn't always come to fruition. They failed. They did the wrong thing. They got tempted. They became distracted. They fell into sin. They lied. Got deceived. Deceived others. And a whole lot of other things as well. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Very familiar. Now, Abram and Sarai are not the perfect role models, just like us. But nonetheless, we're going to look into, see how God worked in their lives. You know, it's not that we should revel in their failings. That's not what this is about. But it gives me some, or us, some comfort and some understanding that Abraham was not perfect. Sarai was not perfect. You know, when you read through the Bible, often you think, you know, the Bible could have 
left when they wrote these about these people. They could have left bits out. You know, they they didn't have to go into all the nitty gritty details. But that's what happened, isn't it? They tell it the story as it is. And I believe this is to encourage us. It shows us that Abraham's faith journey is no different to ours. Now Abraham, now his name is I'm going to get confused because he had a name change. But it's Abram or Abraham. So, you know, he had his mountaintop experiences and he had his valleys to go through. He had times of great joy and times of great difficulty. If you'd like to turn to Genesis 16 and I'll read. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram Abram agreed to Sarai what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my maidservant in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that you too will be, you will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. I like this bit. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why... The well was called Bia La Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. It's interesting, you know, Ishmael is the uh, forefathers of the Arabs, and you can see that. They can be a wild donkey of a race, can't they? There's a lot of issues going on there still. You know, waiting, as Sam said this morning, we love to wait. 
We like to show exercise patience. You know, I don't think I've really met anybody who really enjoys it. You know, slow drivers on the road, on hold on the telephone and I think for some people it causes great stress in their day to wait. You know, in modern Western society we don't want to wait for anything. Everything's on hand. Having recently been to Tonga, when you go to a country like that, they have a saying over there and it's called Tonga time. That's interesting, I wonder what that means. Well, it meant it will happen at some stage, we just can't give you a time. It's no help to anybody, is it? You know, in um, these verses, more than 10 years had passed from the end of chapter 6, sorry, to the start of chapter 16, from verse chapter 15, verse 4, and this is what it said in 15:4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So that was 10 years before the start of chapter 16. You know, 10 years is a long time in any man's language. You know, and I looked up, I thought, what happened 10 years ago? 2004. So I found some things that 10 years, the Indonesian tsunami happened. Mary Donaldson married Prince Frederick. Jetstar Airways started up. And for the TV people, Deal or No Deal started and Burke's Backyard finished. (laughs) Ten years ago. It's a long time, isn't it? Ten years from God's promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Ten years. I mean, it's easy to say. There again, it's easy to say. You know, we don't want to wait ten days, do we? I don't. I want an answer. Ten days for God to answer our prayer, it's just too long. You know, I need an answer now. I have to plan ahead. I'm a busy person. If I don't get an answer, what am I going to do? Do I have to take matters into my own hands? I don't have time to wait 11 days. You know what I found? It's easy to say to others, you have to wait on God. You need to be patient. He is faithful. He won't let you down. You just need to trust him. Easy to say, isn't it, to other people? Not easy to practice. Sarah and Abraham had arrived at this point after 10 years where I think they thought we need to take matters into our own hands. That's what people do. When we believe nothing's going on, nothing's happening, that's what we do. And Abraham and Sarah, I must have been thinking, ten years since God promised, maybe he's forgotten. Did we hear him right? You know, at this time, Sarah is about 75 and Abraham is 85. Maybe she's thinking to herself, it's not going to happen. How can I have a child at my age? I know God said but surely this is my last chance. It's now or never. You know what? With God, it's never impossible. Humanly humanly impossible, but never with God, it's never impossible because he is God and God is not bound by human shortcomings. In Matthew 19.26 it says this, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. 
but with God all things are possible. You know, you may have something going in your life that you think there is no solution. This problem I have is so complex that it's impossible to solve. It isn't true. God can do what God does. Solve the impossible. So Sarai suggests to Adam that she could start a family through her servant Hagar. Now this may seem strange to us, but culturally this was not unusual in its day. It was a common practice throughout society at that time. So what did Abraham say? Did he say, look, that's not a bad idea, let me consult God on this? No, he didn't. He agreed. You know, I've found throughout my life there's plenty of people willing to give advice. There's plenty of people to say, you know what, you should do this or you could do that or why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that? And it's very common, isn't it? You know, people are very happy to give advice. Some are not so happy to take it. You know, sometimes the advice is good and sometimes it's not so good. But I would say this. God's advice would be to test it. Regarding spiritual matters, you need to test them. Don't just take someone's well-meaning advice and run with it. You need to test it. Ask God, is this part of your plan for my life? Does this idea that's been suggested to me align with God's word? By doing this thing I'm about to do, will it have bad ongoing effects that will cause myself my family and others, short, medium or long-term grief. You know, I've seen it happen. I've read about it in books. It's in the Bible. You know, people here would have gone through it or witnessed it indirectly. God's advice is to test it. One unwise decision can have dire long-term effects. You just ask Adam. So Hagar, she becomes pregnant. Sarai gets upset. Hagar despises Sarai. Sarai says to Abraham, it's your fault. Abraham says to Sarai, not my problem, you sort it out. You know, if it's like I said, man has not changed, has he? These things still go on today and you would think we'd be a bit smarter, but we're not necessarily so. So, God, so by trying to expedite God's plan, this situation arose. You know, the thing I noticed when I read through this, that at no stage did any of the people say, let's seek out God. You know, what does God think we should do? What does God say here? It didn't happen. There's no record of it at all. When we take God's instructions and we distort them to suit ourselves. You know, we find it difficult to seek out God, don't we? We think we've made this decision, what do we do now? What I've found is we tend to make another bad decision and we try to make it right. Rather than go, back to, rather than go to God and say, you know what, I think I made the wrong decision, I've messed this up. That's what we should do. But I think it's pride or guilt kicking you know, when I was reading through this, I thought about Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit in the garden and it says that their eyes were opened, 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What did they do? Hid from God. They didn't want to confront God. They didn't want to talk to him. They hid from him. They felt guilty and ashamed. I think, you know, a guilty conscience is an inbuilt mechanism that God gives us. It's placed inside us and when it goes off our tendency is to hide from God. We don't want to speak to him. We don't want to seek him out. Maybe this resembles us today. We may be hiding from God. You know he's there. You know something needs to be dealt with or sorted out. You can feel it in the background, can't you? It hums away. You're avoiding something that you know you need to deal with. Don't run away from God. Go and seek him out. Sort out that problem. Confess the sin. Don't let it fester away inside you. So Hagar, what did she do? She's getting a hard time. Things are not great. So she fled. And the angel of the Lord found her in the desert and said, go back. That's what he said to her, go back. Sometimes you need to go back to go forward. Sometimes, until we deal with something in the past, we can't move forward. You know, in the industry, I'm in the building industry, sometimes we're confronted with an issue or a problem and we need to go three steps back. We need to undo three steps of something that's not right to make it good. Putting good over bad does not solve any problems. You cannot build a sound structure on a faulty foundation. It doesn't work. You cannot live your life with unresolved issues between you and others, you and God, and move forward effectively. If you haven't experienced it, you would have seen it or read about it. The Bible's got plenty of stories about that, of unresolved things. You know, at the end of... When you get to the end of chapter 16, Abraham, Abram, is 86 years old. And at the start of chapter 17, he's 99. 13 years of no record of really what's gone on. But do you know what? I'm not sure what took place in those 13 years, but I'm sure it was all part of God's plan and Abraham's journey. You know, in chapter 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He tells him his 90-year-old wife will have a child. He changes Sarai's, his and Sarai's name, gives Abram some clear instructions on what he wants him to do, which he does as God requested. You know, you get the impression of those 13 years was spent developing his faith and his understanding of God. You know, he's still, when you get, as we read forward in the next few weeks, he still stumbles here and there, and we'll see that in chapter 20. But also some acts of faith that shows he has grown in his faith. I've got to admit, when I was reading through Abraham's story, I found it frustrating at times. So I went to Hebrews chapter 11 and this is what it said about Abram, Abraham. 
I'm just going to read the verses that are related to Abraham and it says this, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a, go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when called, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking he did receive Isaac back from death. You know, that helped me get a better understanding of Abraham by reading those verses. And two things stood out to me there. Even men of great faith have their shortcomings. You know, he's listed here as one of the great people of faith in God's word, but he had his shortcomings and his failings. The other thing that hit me was we humans, we tend to look at the shortcomings of others. We think, you know, you read something, you think about David and you think of the things he did wrong, not the great things and God said he was a man after his own heart, but we think of their shortcomings. Yet when you read in Hebrews, it doesn't talk about Abraham's shortcomings. And I thought, you know, God is a God of not a second chance, is he? He's a third, he's a fourth, he's a fifth. However many, you go back to God, he will will. Start with you again where you're at. Our papers are not marked never to be used again by God. He forgives when we repent. Yet we, on the other hand, we struggle with this concept, I think. We find it difficult to forgive and move on. We find our brothers' and sisters' shortcomings can define our dealings with them in the future, but not with God. You know, being a man of great faith didn't make make him perfect, just as our faith does not make us perfect. The question I think we need to ask is, is our faith journey going in the right direction? Will we have increased our faith by the end of 2014? Will my faith be greater in God? Will I be more like Jesus, as Terry said, at the end of this year than I was at the start of the year? If we were to say we wanted to increase our bicep muscle, or our calf muscle, we wanted to be able to, you know, reel off the times tables. That's a way we would do it, in, wouldn't we? We'd find a weight program, an exercise program. We'd try mental arithmetic and we'd start it. We'd start building that muscle and gradually it would start to develop. And if we continually worked that muscle, it would keep developing. The more we worked it, the more it would develop. You know, I think our faith is no different. It will not develop just by turning up at church. 
Not that that's a bad thing to do, but that will not alone develop your faith. It's in conjunction with other things that will help you build your faith. You know, sitting on your couch will not build your faith. Watching TV will not build your faith. We need to work at it. We need to exercise. It needs to be put to work. And I was thinking of a story in Joshua. In Joshua chapter 3. And I'm going to read some verses in Joshua chapter 3. The scene here is um, the Israelites about to cross the flooded Jordan River. I love this story, so I'm going to read some verses of it. You can follow through. (coughs) Joshua chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go. Verse 5. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Verse 11. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan, and this is the part I think is important, and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. Um, Verse 17. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed until the whole nation had completely crossed the the dry ground. I love these verses, you know. And it gives me a great demonstration of how to grow our faith or develop our faith. The situation they're confronted in is a flooded river that they, have, they need to cross. And God said, not until the priest carrying the ark, feet touched the water, did the river stop flowing. You know, I always read that and I think, not how I'd do it. You know what I'd say? Why don't you stop the river now before we cross? Or at the very least half an hour. 
then we can all see that it's safe to cross. You know, a flooded river is a dangerous thing. I was just, Tracy and I walked this morning and we walked along the river in Eltham there and I've got pictures at home when it flooded and we stood on the edge there and thought, you wouldn't go near it. It's wild and dangerous. You know, I've seen on TV of cars getting swept away. Imagine people trying to cross it. Here's the point. You wouldn't need a lot of faith if that happened, would you? If Joshua said to the Israelites, look, at 11 tomorrow God's going to stop the river flowing for two days. I think if we get there at 12 and it looks safe to cross, that's what we'll do. That's how I'd like to do it. You know, you'd think, well, that's impressive, wouldn't it? You know, God stopped the river and we can walk through. That's really good. I'd feel quite comfortable probably to do that. But that's not what God did because the faith element is taken away and it's not what what happened here. God said, not until your feet get wet or you step out in faith will the river stop flowing. You need to step out in faith. Not alone. You see, when you read through that, the ark went first and they said it was about a thousand yards roughly in front of the people. And you know, the ark was a symbol to the Israelites of God's presence and God's power. God told the Israelites to follow the ark through the river. In other words, keep your focus on the ark. We don't have an ark to follow today, but we have God. And he asks us to keep our eye on him and he will direct our paths. You know, developing our faith requires action on our behalf. I liked what Tony said this morning. You know, he had to get up and do something, didn't he? He didn't sit at home and wait for this job to turn up or for something to happen. He got up, he moved, he took action, he followed, he believed that's what he needed to do to make God, and God worked through that, didn't he? We need to move in a direction that God's calling us with our eyes firmly fixed on him. But we need to move. We need to move to see God work in our lives. You know, when we get to chapter 22, we see Abraham's faith has developed to a point where he's willing to sacrifice Isaac. And I think, gee, after all he went through to have that son, that's where his faith was. That's where he got to with his faith. That he, you know, I don't know how you describe what they went through to get to that point, but it was... Not easy. 25 years of waiting for Isaac's birth, but his faith was so strong that he trusted God enough to sacrifice him, believing God could raise him from the dead. You know, it sounds a little scary at first, but in my life, when I've seen God worked through my life, through me putting faith in him, it's amazing to see. It's an amazing experience. And you imagine what it was like, you know, for these guys to see that river stop when they had to put their feet in the water for God to do what he did. You know, D.L. Moody said there are three kinds of faith. Struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming, which is imma- he described as immature faith. The second one was clinging faith. It's like a man hanging onto a side of a boat and that's developing faith. 
And then there's resting faith, like a man safely within the boat and able to reach out his hand to help someone else get in. You know, they all had faith. They were all at different points of their journey, but only one man, the man in the boat, who had his faith developed, could he help others. You know, as I went through here, I was thinking of you know, some of the promises of God that will help us in our faith journey. And I've got a couple here that I'll read just before we close. In Jeremiah 29.11 it says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Matthew 11.28.29 Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle in heart and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And the last one's Isaiah 40.29-31. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You know, I think there's a lot to be learned from the lives of, you know, the people in Genesis. And I think we can learn that we are on a journey. We will have our stumblings and failings, but we need to focus our eyes on God and ask him to direct our paths and then we need to act and step out in faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the um, cold hard facts that are presented in Genesis of the lives of your people and the way they acted uh, with each other, the way they acted between themselves and you and how you dealt with them. And I thank you that uh, that's an encouragement to us this morning that we can read about this and understand that uh, failings are part of our life and that um, there is always, we can always come back to you and uh, make things right. And I pray now as we go out during this week that we'll be conscious of um, our faith journey and the things that we need to do to see you work in our lives to help us to become more like you in the things that we do. We ask for all these things in your name. Amen.